I've entitled my thoughts this morning, A Sovereign God, and will be a consideration of what I believe in our particular time will be a very comforting thought to you. And the word that I kept thinking of this morning as I was preparing my mind and heart to speak to you on this subject is that this is a very reassuring thought. It's a reassuring thought. As we concluded last week's message, we read a couple of passages and referred to a couple of passages, teachings of Christ in Matthew's gospel. And we'll begin this morning where we concluded last week in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Our thoughts last week were entitled, I Shall Not Want, and were on the subject of anxiety and worry. And I was very reassured, to use that word again, by the feedback that we received from that, knowing that at any given time, if you took a census of a congregation of people, there are always several things in a congregation that the members thereof are worrying about. And so I was, I was greatly encouraged by the feedback that we received from last week's message. I'm thankful that God led me in that way, and I'm hopeful that it was helpful to you. We continue today where we left off last week in the book of Matthew chapter 6, and as we begin reading in verse 24, the thought that I want to observe from this passage today, we looked last week from the perspective of God will take care of you. Today, I want to look at the fact that as God cares for you, the reason that God can care for you the way that he does is because he's sovereign, because he is the ruler of this universe, because he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. The Lord reigns. He is the ruler of all creation, and he is a God that is in control of the universe. Now, we'll clarify what we mean by in control in a moment. We'll draw some distinctions between his oversight and his orchestration. Certainly there are things in the world that God is not the author of. And so we say up front that God most certainly is not the author of sin or wickedness. But God most certainly is in control according to the Word of God. Now, as we make that statement of fact to you today, God is in control. Do you feel almost a sigh of relief having those words spoken to your mind and your heart once again. God is in control. You and I are not in control. And it takes events such as the ones that we're facing in the world right now just to remind us one more time about the fact that we most certainly are not in control. Now, Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, Jesus' point in this passage is to tell them that they can't serve two masters. They'll either love one and hate the other, serve one and not serve the other. And the other master that Jesus speaks about here is referred to as mammon. Mammon basically means money. Now, how many of us, the chief thing that we worry about Monday through Friday is money? We worry about it. How are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to take care of ourselves? Is my job going to continue? How many of you ended this week wondering... Am I even going to have work to do for the next three to six weeks to even be paid for? And if I can't, if I can't earn the money, if I can't go to work, because everything in human society 
is brought to a halt because of the fear of this plague that seems to be spreading through the world. How is it? Will I buy food? How will I pay the mortgage? How will I take care of my family? Well, Jesus stops us here and he jolts us to a reality. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Who is our master? Who do we serve? It better not be money. It better be God. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet your body, what you shall put on, is not life more than meat, and the body more than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? And absolutely you are. Jesus didn't send his son to die for birds. He sent his son to die for you. But for God to feed the fowls of the air, God has to be sovereign. He has to have absolute power and authority over the creation that he has made. God is not helpless. God is not caught off guard. God is not surprised. God is not shocked. God is not worried about the situation in the world today. Because God has complete control over the universe. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? In a different occasion, perhaps it would be appropriate to be funny. All of us men, if, if you didn't reach six foot, you wanted to hit six foot tall. And some of you here are far exceeding six feet tall. We have a quite a number of taller men in our congregation, but I think 5'9 on a good day, if I'm not slouching, it would have been great to be six foot tall, but how many of you men can increase your stature by a cubit by taking thought? Can you worry your way into another cubit of height or perhaps wider shoulders or a bigger frame? You can't worry your physical stature into changing and so why do we worry about the things of this life? Why take thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. They don't produce clothing. The field doesn't. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Why can God clothe the field with lilies? Because he has sovereign power over the field. He has sovereign power over the lilies. He has sovereign power over the birds. He has sovereign power over you. He has sovereign power over me. He has sovereign power over the plague because he is God. Therefore, take no thought. That means don't worry about it. Does that mean we live careless lives? No. But we take no thought. We don't worry. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? What do we do? We seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If there ever was a verse in the Bible that conveys, take it one day at a time, it's verse 34. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. For the morrow shall 
take thought of the things for the things of itself. How does he conclude this statement? Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof doesn't mean that God causes sufficient evil things in a day. Don't be mistaken about the meaning of that passage. It means that there's enough things to worry about in one day. You don't need to dwell on tomorrow. You don't need to dwell on the next week. You don't need to dwell on the next month. How many of us in the world right now are just dwelling on what happens next week? What happens the week after? What happens the month after? When is this all going to be over? When is the curve going to drop back down of people being stricken with the bug that's in the world? Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. There's enough things to be concerned with in a day. Don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough things that ought to draw our attention in a day. And in all of those things, we trust God. We commit our souls unto as unto a faithful creator. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, we also referenced last week. Jesus' point here is not to fear men. Don't fear men, them which have power to destroy the body. There's one that has power even to destroy the soul. And so if there's an entity in the world that we are to have reverential fear for, it is God Almighty. We have to be very careful when we talk about fearing God because there's a sense in which we don't need to be afraid of God. But there is a sense in which we are to fear Him. And we have to take both sides of that coin. What is one of the marks of an unregenerate soul? There is no fear of God before their eyes. So to fear God is even the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. We are to, in a sense, fear Him with a reverential fear. Jesus is speaking about this here and denying us, denying Him before men. And He makes a statement, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? This means that they're not worth a whole lot. It doesn't take a whole lot of money to buy a couple of, of sparrows. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Now this doesn't mean that every time a bird dies, God killed the bird. But they don't die without your father. He knows where they are. He cares for them as a faithful creator. God cares for the birds and the animals and the insects and the fields and the grass. Understand, this is my father's world. He is sovereign over it. Not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father. And to couple this with the statement that we just read from Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, are you not much more valuable to God than the fowls of the air? But the very hairs of your head are numbered. This presents to us a God that is omniscient, first of all. Because the hairs of your head are numbered, he knows everything, even how many hairs are upon your head. Ladies, he might even know the actual hair color. I made the joke the other day as my hair continues to develop more and more of those pesky gray hairs. I, I told my mom that they make a shampoo for men that makes your hair turn back brown. And don't be surprised if I have brown hair till I'm 60 years old. He knows... Every hair on your head. He knows you better than you know you. This also conveys God's omnipresence. Not one sparrow shall fall without Him. This is telling us that He's everywhere present and nowhere absent. 
And based upon what we read about him caring for the birds and caring for the fields, he has sovereign power over everything. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, holy, 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 the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. He's not running for office. He's not worried about re-election. He's concerned about no one's will in the world but his own. And his will shall be done in earth as it is in heaven. God is unthwartable, immutable. And in the last day when he judges and he brings everything to final culmination, his enemies will cower before him. And even that wicked one, the devil, shall bow his knee and say, the Lord reigns. I want you to understand the God that we serve today. Now, as we begin to define sovereignty for you, and again, I can think of no more reassuring doctrine as we face a global pandemic than the doctrine of God's sovereignty. As an adjective, the word sovereign means that which possesses supreme or ultimate power. God possesses supreme, ultimate power. Sometimes we use this word sovereign to refer to a powerful monarch. In other words, when the nation of England had a king and the king was the ruler of all of the nation, whatever he said went. He would issue a decree the technical term for that is fiat, F-I-A-T. He would decree something, and whatever he decreed, well, that's what was going to happen to the best of the ability of all of those who followed him. And so the word sovereign would be used to describe the kings of men. But God is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the sovereign of sovereigns. He alone has ultimate power and authority in the world. Our Congress can pass a bill. Our president can sign it. The Supreme Court can approve it as legal, constitutional, and lawful. But could they issue a decree today to cause all illness from our continent to be vanquished and it be so? No. Their power is limited. They are constrained. There is only so much that they can do. And yet God simply needs but to speak. And it will come to pass because he is God and he will work his will, as we will see in a moment, among the army of heaven and the inhabitants of men. And none can say unto him, what doest thou? None can stay his hand. As we speak about sovereignty, I like to define this as the Bible fact, the doctrine that God does what he wants when he wants, how he wants, if he wants. He does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants, if he wants, when God wants to do something. And the word there in the Bible is wills to do something. God will do it. He will do it. Now, to clarify some thoughts on that, this doesn't mean that everything that we do is God's will for us to do. And I have to give the disclaimer because of 2,000 years of church history and people who took this too far in either direction. I don't want to agree with the fatalistic determinists 
nor do I want to agree with the deists. And there are things that are on the agenda for us to talk about today that God has done in the world that some people say, well, God never does things like that. God doesn't do this. God doesn't do that. Oh, I beg to differ. I have the Old Testament in my Bible. There are things that God does in the world. And at now, more than any other time, perhaps, in our recent history, as we look at a plague going through the world, is a good time to remember that there are times even which, when God sends plagues and famines and sicknesses and death as a judgment upon men so that they will humble themselves before Him. Now, is that what's happening in the world today? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Whether it's judgment or that which is common for men to suffer because of the sin of Adam or God's direct providential judging of this world, I know not. But one thing I do know, our reaction to it is to be the same. We humble ourselves in the presence of God. We humble ourselves in the presence of God. God does what He wants, when He wants, how He wants, if He wants. We don't always do what God wants us to do. How do you know that? Because in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote that it's the will of God, even our sanctification, that we abstain from fornication. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, It is commonly reported that there is fornication among you. It is God's will that people remain pure until they are married. And yet we read that people don't remain pure until they are married. They violated the prescriptive will of God. In other words, what is clearly revealed in the Word. This is God's will as it has been revealed to us. But we also have God's determining will, that which He causes or He permits. And that's really what we're discussing today when we talk about God doing all His will. Another way that I've said this in the past, we don't always do God's will, but mark my word, God always does God's will. God always does God's perfect will. His will is perfect. His will is holy. He is omnipotent. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And so he worketh his will among the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say unto him, Can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? As we think about God's will and his oversight, the word that I want to use in conjunction with that word, he has control. By that I mean that he has oversight in all of creation. Oversight. We are familiar with that word, and it's a biblical term, overseer. As we are pastors, we are under shepherds, under Christ. We oversee the flock. But there is one with oversight over all of us, and that is God. He has oversight throughout creation. As one preacher put it in my youth, it was actually Elder Lonnie Mazingo, Jr., God causes things, or God suffers things. But He has oversight over all. To say the opposite, or to say otherwise, would be unthinkable, for He would no longer be God. If God had no oversight, now as we think about the plagues in the world today, and I was reading about some scary ones this week. You think this one is bad? Go read about MERS. 34.5% death rate, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. It's also a coronavirus that was transferred, they believe, from camels to people because coronaviruses can spread between man and beast. 34% of the people who came down with that plague died. There are some scary plagues. 
To say that God has no power over the plague is to present a God that is not the God of the Bible. To say otherwise that God isn't sovereign, what sort of a God would that be? Well, it would be a God that tries, and a God that wants to, and a God that wishes that he could, but not the God of the Bible. For God to be able to spare you from the plague necessitates God's authority and power over the plague. You see, if He didn't have sovereign control over and power over things such as that, and again, God causes, God permits, God suffers. More on that in a minute. But if He didn't have sovereign power over things like that, He couldn't stop you from getting it. If He couldn't stop you from getting it, why would we feel inclined to pray? Because the answer would be, I'll do all that I can. But that's not the God of the Bible. That isn't the God of the Bible. By the way, as we speak about God's sovereignty, it's really important for us to remember that God is also righteous. God is also holy. By one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. All of the terrible things in the world don't exist because it made God happy in heaven to cause all of these things to exist. These things exist in the world because men are sinful. Never forget that. Concerning God's oversight, again, if God didn't have authority over things such as this, He wouldn't be God and that would be unthinkable. There are things that God causes. He directly brings it to pass. There are also things that God causes or leads to be through means. In other words, God judges Israel... And so how God judges Israel, He sends a nation called Babylon there. And you can't read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel without understanding that God sent that judgment upon them because of their sin. Why did God send it? Just because He wanted to be mean? No. It was a righteous judgment and it was still better than they deserved because what they deserved was the lake of fire. When something bad happens in the world, don't sit around saying, Oh, poor me, woe is unto me, blues, agony, despair on me. No, 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 no. If I'm not in the lake of fire, I have it better than I deserve. If I'm in the lake of fire, I have exactly what I deserve. God has caused things. There was a dude in the Old Testament that he was rather offended at, and he caused the ground to open up and swallow him alive. He sent snakes into the camp of Israel to bite people. He passed through Egypt and slew the firstborn. He didn't utilize anything. He did it himself. He caused it to be. There are some times that God causes things through, again, means. He might send Babylon in. To judge, He might send Cyrus, king of Persia, in to overthrow the Babylonians. He might send General Titus to s surround Jerusalem and siege Jerusalem. That's God working through men. We said last week that we can be, in a sense, God's hands as we care for His children in the world. God provides for many of His children through other ones of His children. And we see Him working in people and through people. There was even a time in the Old Testament when God sent a word to a false prophet through a talking donkey. 
you look at all the ways that God has worked in the Word of God, one thing it tells you is that He will work through however He chooses to work, whether it's speaking in the middle of a whirlwind or a still small voice to say He's not in the whirlwind, whether it's a donkey speaking or an educated preacher like Saul of Tarsus. God does what He wants, how He wants, when He wants, if He wants. God is sovereign. But there are also things in the world that God permits and under permits, just for the sake of clarity, we choose to use the word suffer. There are things that God suffers. And by the way, that's a biblical word. Concerning the wicked of this world, God endures them, Romans chapter 9, with much long suffering. Why would we choose to use the word suffer as it regards to God's oversight in the world? He causes or He permits. Of those things that He permits, there are things that He gladly allows, but there are also things that He suffers. We use the word suffer because it conveys displeasure. In other words, God might suffer sinful things to happen, but do not be mistaken that God is pleased with the sin that He suffers. Now, you might begin to ask the question, why then does God suffer things such as that in the world? And my answer to that always is, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Romans chapter 11. I don't know why. And you know what? I don't have to. Because it doesn't change the way I react to anything. If something terrible happens in the world, I need to seek His face and humble myself and pray. And regardless of the cause, if I have sinned, and I'm being chastened, and I humble myself, and I seek His face, and I pray, I'm doing exactly what I need to do if I've sinned. But if it's a national judgment, and I humble myself, and I seek His face, and I pray, and I turn from my wicked ways, I've done exactly what I need to do. If I'm suffering persecution for my faith, and I humble myself, and I pray, and I turn from my wicked ways, and I seek His face, I'm doing exactly what I need to do. The reaction from us never changes despite whether it's any number of causes of suffering in the world. Again, to be very clear, God does not approve of nor does He cause the sinful actions of men. God is not the author of sin. But God is a sovereign king over creation with oversight and control. He has power over everything, lest He is not God. I want to look at a few statements of God's sovereignty today, and I hope I'm not being a fire-breathing dragon. Fire-breathing dragons belong in folklore. They don't belong in pulpits, and sometimes it's hard for the preacher on this subject not to be the fire-breathing dragon. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, I've quoted this twice in the message today. Daniel is recording the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. You know Nebuchadnezzar. We studied Daniel in 2014, if you recall that message, that series. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. He has besieged Jerusalem three times. He has carried men into captivity, forced them to serve as slaves in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar does what a lot of men do, he walks around, he looks at the kingdom, and he said, Is not this great Babylon that I, Nebuchadnezzar, have built, have made? 
And when he says this, notice this in verse 30. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? For the honor of my majesty? Wait a minute, Nebuchadnezzar. You are a turtle on a fence post. Oh, you're lifted up. You didn't get yourself there. And frankly, you don't even know how to get down. You don't know what you're going to do there. Everybody walks by and they know you're there. But they also know that you certainly got there by no power of your own. Nebuchadnezzar, you are a turtle on a fence post. By the way, that's true for every preacher as well. While the word was in the king's mouth, the sound waves are still leaving his lips. A voice fell from heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from thee. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as an oxen seven times. Seven seasons shall pass over until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Nebuchadnezzar then was driven out of his mind. God judged him and caused him to go insane. This is one of the judgments that we read about from time to time in Scripture. And it's not to say that every person who has a mental issue is given a judgment of God. Because you find people in the world that they interpret any suffering or any calamity all through one lens. And remember, there are many causes of suffering in the world. We've talked about this time and time again. There are many causes of suffering in the world. Nebuchadnezzar's suffering was brought about as divine chastening, as a judgment from God. He was driven out of his mind. I often think about King Saul as he was jealous against David after God had rejected him from being king because of his rebellion to God. God says, go kill this king, kill all of his people, kill all of the animals, wipe them off the face of the earth because they attempted genocide against my people. I'm going to rid the world of them. Well, King Saul decides he wants to keep the king as a trophy. I believe the king's name was Agag. And then keep all of the best of the spoil. Samuel gets word of it and he says, Why didn't you take care of them? Oh, blessed be the name of God. We've fulfilled his word. Then why do I hear animals blading? Why is the king standing over there? We were going to sacrifice to the Lord. And he says, is not obeying better than sacrifice? Why don't you just do what he said? Have you tried that, Saul? You know how the story goes. God chooses David, appoints David as king of Israel, and Saul is jealous. He attempts to slay David over and over again. But because of Saul's audacious insolence, God sends King Saul an evil spirit to trouble him, which is why David was the harpist. David would play the harp to try to lift Saul's spirits. It was a form of antidepressant for him. Why did Saul receive the troubling from the evil spirit? Because of his rebellion to God. He was troubled in spirit. Sometimes he would be so mad at David as David played the harp that he would throw a javelin at him and it would stick in the wall and David would barely escape. Who sent that evil spirit to plague him? God sent that evil spirit to plague him. 
We'll comment on the definition of evil in just a moment. Because in the Old Testament, many times it doesn't have reference to sin. It has reference to calamity. He sent him a troubled spirit. Calamity of soul. Nebuchadnezzar is driven out from among men. He looks like some sort of a science fiction creature. His hair grows out like feathers. Somebody asked me once, was that the origin of dreadlocks? I don't know. His fingernails grow out like bird claws, and he ate grass like an ox. When God was done dealing with him, his mind came to him. He lifts up his eyes to heaven. His understanding returned unto him, and he blessed the Most High. And he praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom from generation to generation. What's that telling you? God will not be dethroned. He has power even over the most powerful men. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The most powerful man in the world at the time bowed his knee and said, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage that you can't help but think about as you study and dwell on the sovereignty of God, his his lordship, his kingship. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, the context of this, Isaiah 45, God is raising up a man named Cyrus in 180 years. He would be born and named Cyrus, but God is telling you his name and where he's coming from and who he is and what he's going to do in advance. Thus saith the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. This man, Cyrus, would be the king of Medo-Persians. He would overthrow Babylon and deliver God's nation back to their land. And in many ways, he's a picture of Christ. The words, many of these that apply to Cyrus could also have reference to Christ. For instance, thus saith the Lord to his what? His anointed. What does the word anointed come into the New Testament as? The Old Testament word anointed comes into the New Testament as the word Christ, the anointed, the ultimate anointed. David was anointed. Every priest was anointed. But the anointed of the Lord is Christ. Christ was the deliverer who came in and delivered God's people. But let's look at verse 5. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I guarded thee, though thou hast not known me. Now this is... God speaking to Cyrus that they might know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. What is darkness? It's the absence of light. There are lights all in this room, and if we flip the switch, darkness fills the void. So how does God create darkness, as it were? He simply withdraws His light, and all that remains is darkness. That gives us a hint into God's interaction many times with calamity. How does calamity spread through the world? 
God withdraws his peace. And the vacuum, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. Have you ever heard that phrase? The void is filled with the calamity of this world because of the sin of Adam. Don't think for a minute that God doesn't withdraw his peace and leave everything left in the wake and in the absence of his peace. Don't think for a minute that God doesn't do that as a judgment upon men. He's done that many times. Look at Romans chapter 1. They seek idolatry. They seek wickedness. They seek immorality. Society. So what does God do? He gives them over to a reprobate mind. He turns loose of them and he says, fine, if that's what you want, take it. He withdraws himself. And then everything left is just the wicked depravity of man without God's restraining presence. Now, God's restraining presence in the world is a subject that we could spend hours talking about as well. It comes into Paul's theology about the end of time. It's a biblical doctrine, God restraining wickedness in the world and sometimes removing that restraint as a judgment upon mankind. But he forms the light. He creates the darkness. He makes peace and he creates evil. The word evil here doesn't mean sin. The word evil, the Hebrew word here means calamity. Now, sin to us is synonymous with evil because all sin is evil. However, not all evil is sin. All sin is evil. All sin is calamity. But not all evil is sin. If the earth begins to shake because fault lines rub together and create an earthquake, is that sin? No. It's just an earthquake. It's just an earthquake. If a volcano erupts, is that sin? No. It's calamity, but it's not sin. Is it evil? Yes. It is evil. It is a form of evil. You see, evil, by definition, the word means anything that is negative, any calamity. A car wreck is an evil in the world. A coronavirus, influenza, the bubonic plague, the Ebola virus, cancer, strokes, heart attacks, Parkinson's, those are all evils. And yet none of those things are sin. They're an affliction. God can create even affliction. And if you've got an Old Testament that you've read, you know that. You know that. He sends it upon His people for their disobedience as chastening. And to a far greater degree, many times He sends it upon the wicked for their outright rebellion against Him. And so here comes those wonderful worship psalms, the... I believe they're imprecatory prayers. Is that the theological term where God says, where the psalmist says, Oh God, break their teeth? You see, the psalmist knew that God could send an evil upon the wicked. Break their teeth. Breaking their teeth is an evil. There are people in the world, people that abuse children, people that harm people, people that steal people. I want God to break their teeth, I want Him to knock their teeth square out of their face. That doesn't sound very nice. Sorry. Not sorry. 
Drop down, ye heavens, from above. Let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation. Let righteousness spring forth together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him that striveth with his maker. Now listen to this language. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, Why makest thou? What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands? There are things in the world that God does, and in those things, he is the potter and we are the clay. Does that language sound familiar to you from a most beloved passage to us about God's sovereignty and salvation? Romans chapter 9. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. What did he just said? He said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. God had right to hate all of us because of our iniquity. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. One of the examples of God's sovereignty that I studied this week was God's interaction with Pharaoh. You want to see God's sovereignty on full display to the entire world? Look at what happened with God and Pharaoh. You have a man who is afflicting God's people. God is going to send judgment, but in the process of that, because this man has been so wicked, God hardens his heart. Now, this isn't God taking a nice little kind Cub Scout, making him a mean dude. This is a wicked man. And God sends a plague, and then he withdraws it. He sends a plague, and then he withdraws it. And through those external forces, God hardens him, much like the way the same sunlight that might melt wax will harden clay. The way steel's hardened is by heating it and cooling it and heating it and cooling it through these external forces of pressing him under his thumb and letting up this man's heart is repeatedly hardened. And every time God lifts the plague, Pharaoh is bent against him. And God does that. Why? Because he wants his name to be declared throughout all the earth. God was sovereign in that. Therefore, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? In other words, well, why misunderstanding God's sovereignty? Then should, should this mean that it's his fault that I do things that are bad? No, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? And then he quotes this passage from Isaiah 45. Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. How does Paul say in Romans that they were fitted to destruction? By the sin of Adam. By the sin of Adam, all men were made sinners. When were they fitted? When Adam fell. How sad is it when God's children, who are actually the vessels that He has prepared through His mercy unto glory, say, God, it's not fair. Fair is the lake of fire, which is the point here. 
But if, it's in, if there's one thing that Isaiah 45 and Romans 9 teaches us, it's that God is the potter and we are the clay. And if God chooses, when God chooses to do something, praise be His name, God is sovereign. Isaiah 46 speaks about God's sovereignty, verses 5 through 11. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like they lavish gold out of the bag. He's talking about idols. They go and make an idol. They bear him upon the shoulder. They put him up someplace. And he stands, and from his place shall he not remove. They cry unto him, yet he can't answer nor save them. You make an idol, you put it on the shelf, you bow around it, you put it where you want it to be, and it can do nothing but sit where you put it. But I, God says, I am God. Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times the things that are not yet saying. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That first statement is a statement of his omniscience. Declaring the end from the beginning. That second is a statement of his providence. My counsel shall stand. He has full knowledge of everything that shall ever come to pass, and he will do everything that is his will to do. I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. You cannot fit deism in the Word of God. Praise God. Why? Because then I can pray to this God, and I know that he hears me, and I know that he loves me, and I know that he answers me. And I know that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I know the universe hasn't been so scripted in such a way that he absolutely predestinated everything that shall ever come to pass. So that when I ask him, it pleases him if it is according to his will when I ask through Christ to give that which I ask for. And so in the midst of this virus, in the midst of this plague, I ask God, dear God, spare us. And I believe if it is His will to spare us, guess what He will do? He will spare us. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if it is not His will to spare us, if it is not His will, when God says no to prayer, then at the end of the day, we bow our knee to Him and we say, Thy will be done. If it pleases you, to suffer this plague, for whatever reason, my response is going to be the same. I hope that we can amen that together. Now, I have about two more points, and they take half a page. So we'll, we'll make this part of it brief. When God sends Moses to Pharaoh, and God and his interaction with Moses and his interaction with Pharaoh, it, it's been such a part of what I've thought about this week. You know what God tells Moses? God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush that burned but was not consumed. Moses begins to make excuses. God says, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people free. He'll kill me. I just ran from there. I've been here on the backside of the desert hiding from him for decades. And if I go back, they'll, they'll kill me. I'm afraid. I don't want to go. I'm a stuttering man. I'm not a smooth-speaking orator. And no matter the excuse, God provides a reason to go back and to preach to Pharaoh to let God's people go. Could anything be more terrifying than going before Pharaoh? God reminds Moses of his sovereignty here. 
I've got a stutter. Well, send your brother Aaron. Okay. Well, well, what's your name? Who shall I tell them has sent me? Look at verse 14 of Exodus 3. I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. When a trembling preacher stood before the God of the universe, afraid to go do the task that he had assigned him to do, God tells him that his name is I Am. Not I was, not I'm trying to be, not I want to be, not one day I will be, but I Am. It's amazing to me that God invokes this title for himself in the moments in which he is about to deliver the most. Before Egypt... And if you turn over to John 8, we won't. But if you turn over to John 8, before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. What's he telling his people? The I am has come to deliver you. Moses is afraid. They're not going to believe me. God says, what's in your hand? A rod. You know, I'm a shepherd and I have a rod and I use it to walk. And he said, throw it on the ground. And it became a snake. And I laugh at verse 3. And Moses fled from before it. He throws the staff down. The staff becomes a serpent. And he screams and he runs from it. You can see Moses jump back a few feet. Ah! And then he says, take it by the tail. He took it by the tail. He caught it and it became a rod in his hand again. What's God displaying here? His sovereign power over creation. He can turn a rod into a snake and then back into a rod. Now listen to this one. God says... Further, put your hand into your bosom. Put now thine hand into thy bosom. He put his hand into his bosom. He took it out and it was leprous, white as snow. He looks at his hand and his hand is stricken with the plague of leprosy. And now you can imagine Moses. <laughs> what does the guy do? And he says, put it back into your bosom. I can imagine that was an instant obedience right there. And he takes it out again and is normal. And then he tells him, I'm going to send you and there are going to be plagues and I'm going to display my power throughout all of this world. What does that display? His sovereignty. So many examples in God's thwarting of Pharaoh of his sovereignty. And, and that's why Paul uses it as one of the examples in Romans 9 of God's sovereignty and our salvation. Look at what he did to Pharaoh Imagine what he'll do in choosing to bless us because he loves us. You see, he takes that clay that Adam has ruined and marred and tarnished, and he, he prepares us unto glory. He has sovereign power even over the wicked one. In the book of Job, and I'm not going to labor this point very long, the book of Job has so many statements of God's sovereignty as well. But if you notice carefully at the beginning of that book, there's not even anything that Satan can do to Job without it being suffered. Now, we're very clear to attribute the terrible things that happened in Job's life, not to God, but to Satan, because Satan went and did those things. But even in that, he couldn't do but what he was suffered to do. That shouldn't scare you, because God has power even over the wicked one. In Job chapter 26... Job, speaking of God, speaking about God's power, 
Dead things are formed under the waters, and the inhabitants thereof. Hell is naked before him. Destruction has no covering. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters in thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under him. He holdeth back the face of his throne, and spreadeth his cloud upon it. It speaks about the pillars of heaven, the dividing of the sea. Job 36, the words of Elihu, as he rebukes Job and Job's miserable comforters. Behold, God is great, verse 26, we know Him not, neither can the number of His years be searched out. For He maketh small the drops of water, they pour down rain according to the vapor thereof. He's describing evaporation. Which the clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. Also, can any understand the spreading of the clouds or the noise of his tabernacle? He spreadeth his light upon it and covereth the bottom of the sea. For by them judgeth he the people and giveth meat in abundance. He's speaking of God's sovereign power over nature. The next chapter speaks of this. It speaks of the snow. It speaks of the frost. It speaks of the rain. And then in the book of Job... God shows up. And as good of a job as Job has done and Elihu has done in speaking of God's sovereignty and His power and His omnipotence, God answers Job out of the whirlwind and He begins to say, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? And He begins to ask Job these questions. Where were you when I created the universe, Job? It's amazing the armchair quarterbacks that we can be. Lord, you know, if you just asked me, I could really tell you how to handle this creation. Oh, please. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea as with doors when it break forth? as if it had issued out of the womb. He goes on to describe great beasts. Job, where were you when I made behemoth? Where were you when I made Leviathan? Job, where were you when I did all of these things? And when God is done speaking to Job, Job's reaction is, I will take my hand and I will put it over my mouth. God alone is sovereign. Other acts of extraordinary sovereign power, His creation, the flood, acts of providence and deliverance, the plagues on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, defeating foes like Goliath, sending and lifting various plagues, chastening His children, affliction on His enemies, sending His Son into the world, even commanding the sea to be still. It's a couple of Psalms we want to read in closing, and I know I've gone a couple of minutes over. If there was ever a time for a long sermon about God's sovereignty, it is today. God has this, friends. It's not out of His power to protect you, to deliver you. In the Psalms, Psalm 93, verse 1, The Lord reigneth, He is clothed with majesty. Psalm 97, the Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Psalm 99, the Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. 
He sitteth between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is high above all the people. Let them praise Thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He maketh known his ways, he made known his ways unto Moses. His acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. We always have it better than we deserve. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. Read that one twice. As the heaven is high above the earth, so is His mercy toward them that fear Him. Are you afraid? His mercy for you is greater than Hubble can see into space. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. For He knoweth our frame, He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto children's children to such as keep His commandment, His covenant rather, and to those that remember His commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens and His kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye His angels, that excel in strength, that do His commandments, hearkening unto the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all ye hosts, ye ministers that do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. May we worship His holy name as we stand together and sing.